Let's pray. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be present among us to help us hear, not just with our ears, but hear deep in our hearts the truth of your word. May we go from this place shaped and fashioned by it, molded more and more into the likeness of Christ, being transformed by the renewing of our minds, that our walk with you would be even more precious and closer, and our likeness to Christ uh, deeper. We pray that for ourselves as individuals, but also for ourselves as a, a church of Christ, the body of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Uh, more than 20 years ago, I did a course at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. It was a, a course in tropical medicine and hygiene, a diploma. And uh, one, of the, one of the sessions, there were people there from all over the world to learn about tropical medicine. Uh, there were some Christians there working at mission hospitals, but there were lots of people who were not Christians but working with various charities and NGOs. So there were a lot of very experienced people who were used to already running hospitals, usually in poor and rural areas of uh, countries in South America and Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. And one of the sessions, uh, the, the, the teacher or the lecturer asked a question, what is the most important thing in running a district hospital? I wonder how you would answer that question or how you would imagine somebody answering that question. What is the most important thing in running a district hospital? And this chap who did run a district hospital, you're asked to write up on a a flip chart or a board, and he wrote up staff morale. Staff morale. He didn't say money. He didn't say drugs. He didn't say laboratory. He didn't say beds. He didn't say staff. He says staff morale. Because if staff morale, that is relationships between staff and among staff, are good, if staff morale is good, then you can do almost anything, even with limited resources. You can persevere in the face of challenges and hardships. And just as a little aside, I think that is something that our own NHS sometimes forgets. Um, if relationships are good, then other things fall into place. And when we read of problems affecting uh, a company or an organization, it can be a business, it can be a school, it can be a political party, it can be a charity, it can be something as big as the government or something as small as our own family unit. Often the problems, very often the problems have something to do with relationships, human relationships. You think of number 10 Downing Street. And I'm not even thinking of the recent news, I'm thinking just of the news of Dominic Cummings and Prime Minister Johnson and his fiancée, who's now his wife. You get this insight, you think they're dealing with these big issues of state and, and they're fighting like, what's the saying? Rats in a sack. It can happen in a hospital too. Um, certainly know of one hospital far away from here. <laughs> For two consultants didn't get on and they used to, used to take it out on the patients. One consultant used to discharge the other consultant's patient when the other consultant wasn't looking, if you like. You know it. Relationships. So most of these problems are to do with human relationships. And that's true. And what's true in the cabinet room of government is true in the staff room. It's true in the classroom. 
It's true in the playground. It's true in the boardroom. It's true in the living room. It's true in the shop floor and the factory floor and on the kitchen floor. And for things to flourish and grow and do well, there needs to be healthy relationships. And the same is true of the church. The same is true of the church because the church is the family of God. The church of Jesus Christ is the family of God. People who by the grace of God are now related to each other. And we are, whether you like it or not, you are part of the church of Christ. If you are a Christian, you are related to your brothers and sisters in the faith. Jesus loved us and gave himself for us, not just to save us individually, but to bring us into a relationship with God as our Father and with each other as brothers and sisters. I remember hearing Ted Donnelly. Some of you will know who Ted Donnelly is, Edward Donnelly, say years ago. And he's from Northern Ireland. He's a professor of Reformed theology. And he said, you know, Northern Ireland... We have this expression, your own and personal saviour. And and I was speaking to the young folks earlier. It's important to have a personal relationship with Christ, isn't it? It's important to have that personal relationship. But you will not find that expression in, in Scripture. What you will find is about the shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. That Jesus is called the saviour of the world. So while it's important to be in a personal relationship with Christ, when we are saved, when we become a Christian, we are immediately brought into the body of Christ, into the flock of the sheep. We are brothers and sisters. So the question is, what does it look like to relate well with one another in the local church? And that is the the question that Paul is addressing here in chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. He is writing to strengthen the relationships within the church family. First of all, in verses 12 and 13, relationships between the leaders and members of the church. And then secondly, relationships among the church members themselves in verse 14 and 15. Why is he he dealing with this, do you think? Well, It was Paul's practice to appoint leaders or elders in newly planted churches. He did that in his first missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts 14, verse 23. First missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas. This is his secondary missionary journey with Silas and Timothy. He doesn't mention elders here by name or pastors or overseers. But although he doesn't describe them using those titles, he does describe their function in these verses 12 and 13. And it's possible, now remember this is a very young church, so the church leaders would have been by definition young Christians themselves. And we know from what we've seen in the rest of the letter, there was a problem with sexual immorality among some, and there was a problem with laziness, with idleness. And you can imagine a situation where these young Christians whom Paul had presumably appointed leaders or elders admonishing, instructing. And some of the members perhaps saying, who are you to tell me what to do? I've been a Christian as long as you. In fact, I've been, maybe some of them might say, I've been a Christian longer than you. So Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 12 and 13, about the strengthening relationships with the leaders. Before we look at them in detail, just, um, well, I'll just read them again. Yeah. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those or know those who work hard among you 
who labor among you, who care for you in the Lord or who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you or who warn you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Now, it's true, isn't it, that the biblical picture of leadership is different from the world's picture of leadership. You see Vladimir Putin sitting bareback on a horseback. Isn't that right? Bareback on a horseback. Yeah, that's right. Sitting bareback on a horse or dressed up in military uniform before thousands of soldiers and tanks and aircraft. Or you see the President of the United States or our own Prime Minister standing on the deck of an aircraft carrier, you know, projecting an image of power, the kind of power that says, don't mess with us. Don't mess with us. But Christian leadership, which is modelled on Christ and carried out in the spirit of Christ, is very different. Christian leadership is not about the love of power, but about the power of love. It is a servant-hearted leadership. But it is still leadership. It still has a God-given authority. But it is an authority for those who care for others in the Lord. Do you notice that little expression in the middle of verse 12? Who care for you or who are over you in the Lord. And the question is, what does that look like in practice? What does it look like to be over others in the Lord? Well, Paul has already shown us in chapter 2. What was Paul's model of pastoral care? Look at verse 7 and 8 and verse 11. He describes himself as a mother and as a father. Paul's model of pastoral care is parental. Being a parent is hard work. It is rewarding work, usually. But it can be hard work and is hard work at times. And Paul writes also in chapter 2, verse 9, doesn't he, of toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. Not wanting to be a burden to his children, but working hard on their behalf. That's the kind of leadership and authority that Paul demonstrated, modelled, of course, on Jesus himself. He spends himself, he gives of himself in love as he parents these young children in the faith. So in chapter 5, verse 12, he calls on the brothers and sisters in Thessalonica to respect, to acknowledge, to know, literally is to know those who work hard, but it means to know the worth of, know the worth of those who work hard among you, who are over you and who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. It's an unusual word, isn't it? I can't think of any, you don't usually come across that word admonish anywhere else but the Bible. I think I'm right in saying that. But certainly my experience is it's a word you read in the Bible. We don't tend to use it in everyday language or even in the workplace but it is a word it's a word of warning it's the idea of warning in love a friendly warning but also a correction and the word is used in the context of behavior of correcting behavior not so much in terms of correcting wrong beliefs but in terms of how we live our lives what we might call the ethics of christianity how we live our lives Now, and as such, to admonish someone is not always easy to give, and it's not always easy to receive. 
It's not always easy to say, even in love. And it's not always easy to hear, especially in the 21st century. We are very reluctant to let anyone else tell us how we should live our lives or where we are going wrong, even as Christians. Yet in the Lord, and it is in the Lord, it is part of the function of church elders and pastors to minister the whole word of God, the whole counsel of God, and how that impacts on all areas of our lives, whether it is easy to say and easy to hear, or quite the opposite. Now, as I said earlier, Paul here doesn't mention terms or titles for those in leadership, but he does describe their function, their responsibilities. Pastors and elders are not to be what Calvin calls idle bellies. I like that expression when he came across it, idle bellies. We are not to be idle bellies, but to work hard, to warn people where needed, and to exercise oversight in the Lord. But if that is the pastor's responsibility and the elder's responsibility, then the congregation also has a responsibility. And that is to acknowledge or respect those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Verse 13, to hold them in the highest regard in love. In love because of their work. To esteem them highly in love because of their work. Now notice that's not because of their personality. It's not because of their gifts. Not because you click with them and get on well with them or not. But because of their work. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. What work? The work that God has called them to do, the work that God has given them to do, the work of ministering the word of God and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that work, to hold them in the highest regard in love. Now here's the thing. We're talking here about relationships between leaders and and members in the church. This whole relationship business between leaders and members is a two-way street, isn't it? What I mean is this, if I am doing what I'm supposed to do, and I know I don't always, but if I as a pastor or if an elder is doing what they are supposed to do, then you or others will find it easier to do what you are supposed to do. But the reverse is also true. If you or we, if I'm in a context of being in a church as a church member, if you are doing what you are called to do in love, then I will find it easier to do what I'm called to do in the Lord. The two things is a two-way street. And in that way, we will all find it easier to live in peace with each other. As Paul says at the end of verse 13, live in peace with each other. Calvin makes the comment that the peace which Paul so strongly commends, not just here but all through his letters, the peace which Paul so strongly commends is not found as widely as it ought to be. Well, you can say that again. (laughs) You can say that again. We know that, don't we? But that's because the church is not perfect. And why is the church not perfect? The church is not perfect because you and I are not perfect. You know the saying, if you find a perfect church, don't join it. Because it will not be perfect anymore. 
The church was never meant to be a group of perfect people, but a gathering of sinful people, sinners who have been forgiven through the cross of Christ, sinners who by the grace of God have found peace with God and are therefore called to live at peace with each other through Christ who is our peace. And that means to bear with one another. Think of all the one another passages in Scripture, to bear with one another, to forgive one another, to love one another, for love covers a multitude. How does it end? Of sins. Because we do sin. We do hurt each other and we do things which are not right, not good, not true, but where there is love, love covers a multitude of sins. And if that is true of our relationships within the church family in terms of leaders and others, it's also true within the body of the church itself. And that's the second section here, strengthening relationships with each other. The first was strengthening relationships with the leaders, 12 and 13. Here in 14 and 15, strengthening relationships with each other. Now, here's a question for you. I wonder what you think your job is, your role is as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ. As a member, and I'm using the term broadly here, your name might not be on the roll, but if you're a, a member in the faith and attending regularly, I look on you as part of the body of Christ here. What is your responsibility? What is our responsibility to each other? Is it simply to pitch up for an hour or so on a Sunday? And that's it. Well, Paul would beg to differ. Verse 14, we urge you, brothers and sisters, we urge you, warn those, and that's the same word, admonish. I know he's talking to everybody. Admonish those, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. But always strive to do what is good. Pursue what is good for each other and for everyone else. I wonder what you make of that first instruction. Brothers and sisters, I urge you, admonish those, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Maybe you thought that that kind of job was just for the pastor and for the elders, for the minister. But Paul, here's writing to the church. This is every member ministry. Every member ministry. It's not just the minister or the pastor or the elders who have a responsibility for the health of the flock. We all do, including warning in love. In this case, admonishing those who are idle and disruptive. Now, this is, we have to face this, folks. This is profoundly countercultural. I mean, we live in a society, there was a man when I was down in Ealing, Jane and I were in Ealing just over a week ago, and there was an older man, an Asian man wearing a t-shirt, and the t-shirt said, only God can judge me. Only God can judge me, and Callum was telling me that's taken from a, no, you weren't telling me, scrap that, I thought you were. Um, anyway, only God can judge me, and there's a sense in which that is course of, that's true, of course. Only God ultimately has the right to either condemn someone for their sins or justify them through faith in Jesus Christ. But we use the word judge in different ways in the English language, don't we? There is a right judgment, a, a, a discernment, a discernment about what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. 
And we are called to exercise discernment, that kind of judgment as Christians. But more than that, in love, in love to speak to our brother and sister when we see them going wrong, off the narrow way. Now, that may make you feel uncomfortable. But it's what we're called to do in love, to speak to each other in love. When we see one of our fellow sheep wandering down a rog path into a bog. Now, you may know uh, that sheep, I'm sure some of you, maybe many of you know that sheep can get into trouble when they're heavily in lamb, when they're heavily pregnant and they rest and they maybe rest in a little bit of a hollow and the sheep will roll over onto its back and it gets stuck because it's the, the weight of the lambs inside the sheep keeps the sheep pinned to the ground. It'll be scrambling around uh, with its legs in the air and the sheep will be stuck usually until the shepherd or someone acting like the shepherd will come to put it back on its feet again. And you might say, well, that's the shepherd's responsibility to look after the flock, the farmer's responsibility to keep an eye out for those things, especially at that time of year. But my sister-in-law, back in Ireland, my sister-in-law saw that I've only heard this once or twice. I've only heard it in person once, where she saw a sheep that was on its back, stuck. And then she saw another sheep come to the sheep and dunt it and nudge it with its head to actually turn the sheep over so that the sheep was able to get back on its feet. I say, I've never seen that myself, but my, my sister-in-law saw that. And it's a picture that, you know, when someone's in trouble and needing help, we just don't wait for the, the elder or the pastor, the minister to help. We all have a part to play. not easy i mean i think i think anybody who finds this easy shouldn't do it <laughs> if anybody takes any pleasure in this they shouldn't do it but if we do see a friend someone we know well and we need to speak to them about some aspect of their behavior which is not christ-like not christian not honoring to god not helpful to them then we need to ask God for strength and courage and humility. Humility to do it in love as a fellow sinner who lives only by the grace of God. Well, we're also to encourage the uh, disheartened. That's the second thing Paul says here to the ordinary members of the church as well. Encourage, comfort the faint-hearted. Encourage the disheartened. Remember, Thessalonian Christians were being persecuted for their faith, and it's possible, of course, that some were discouraged and disheartened by the opposition. We are to encourage the disheartened. We are to help the weak. We are to help the weak. And I think Paul here has in mind mostly those who are weak in their faith, because that's the way he uses this word elsewhere in Romans 14, verse 1, and Romans 15, verse 1. That will accept the brother and sister who is weak in their faith. Help those who are weak in their faith. Those who are fearful of the present and fearful of the future. Help them to, to grasp the great truths of the gospel and our security in Christ. And whether we are warning, admonishing, whether we are encouraging, comforting, or whether we are helping the weak, we are to be patient with everyone. End of verse 14. Be patient with all 
And that's not easy, is it? That's not, for most of us, I would expect that's not easy <laughs> to be patient with everyone. It's not easy to be patient with the same people who have the same problem week after week, month after month, year after year. It's easy to get annoyed, to be impatient, forgetting that we ourselves have our own sins, our own problems, our own weaknesses, and that we struggle week by week. And we need others to be patient with us, forgetting that our God and Saviour is a long-suffering God who has been so patient and is so patient with us. Do you remember how Paul wrote to Timothy in his first letter, 1 Timothy, how he describes himself as the chief of sinners? And then he says, but for this very reason I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus, might display his immense patience. His immense patience. As an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Do you think of yourself as a patient person? I heard Sinclair Ferguson tell the story, not this past week in London, but elsewhere on another occasion, that, you know, when somebody uh, loses their patience or becomes irritable, and then they say something like this, I'm normally a patient person. <laughs> Sinclair says, well, they're not. What they mean is, I'm normally a patient person until my patience is tested. I think we can identify with that. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Love, joy, peace, patience, or forbearance, forbearance, patience. It is part of the fruit of the Spirit of Christ. It is the character of Jesus. It's interesting that in the list of the fruit of the Spirit that comes after peace, you have love, joy, peace, patience. These are the two things that Paul mentions here. He says, live in peace with each other, end of verse 13. He says, be patient with everyone, end of verse 14. Part of the fruit of the Spirit of Christ, which grows only as the, the branch remains in the vine of Christ, putting to death, chopping off the sin. We have to put to death in the power of the Spirit, as well as live in Christ and for him. Part of the Spirit of Christ is part of the character of Jesus who did not repay evil for evil, wrong for wrong, but always strove to do what was good for everyone, including his enemies. Verse 15. Maybe I don't, I was going to say maybe I don't need to say this, but I think I do need to, to say it because these things happen even inside churches, don't they? Brothers and sisters, there is no room for revenge or retaliation, or resentment in the church of Jesus Christ. If someone snubs you, we're not called to snub them back. We're called to love them. There is no room for revenge, retaliation, or resentment in the church of Jesus Christ. There is always room for patience, and kindness, and goodness, and love in the Lord Jesus. Always room, plenty of room. Because love is patient. Love is kind. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to see to it, to make sure, Paul writes, make sure, see to it, 
that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, that always strives to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Doing good for those inside and outside the church so that in a world where relationships often go pear-shaped, others may see a people and a place where relationships are Christ-shaped. Not a place where nothing ever goes wrong or no mistakes are ever made or no sin is ever committed. No, not at all. But a place when things do go wrong and mistakes are made and sins committed, that mercy triumphs over judgment. And forgiveness and forbearance in the Lord win the day. For friends, that is a church where the work of God and the work of the gospel will flourish and prosper, whatever the difficulties. A church where relationships with each other are strong because our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is real and life-changing. Amen. Father, who is sufficient for these things, And yet, Father, you have given us your word and you have given us your Holy Spirit that we, in the power of your Holy Spirit, might live the kind of life that Christ has called us to live and even given of himself his own life that we may live out of him with each other. Whatever position we occupy in the church, we are all brothers and sisters. You are our Heavenly Father. And help us to be a place where we are known for our forgiveness and our forbearance. For our patience and for being at peace with each other. To that end we ask for your help. We ask for your protection from the attacks of the evil one. We ask Father for grace. In Jesus name. Amen. Thank you.